Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to the Global Current, Seton Hall's School of Diplomacy podcast. Each week, we break down a new topic in global affairs and have a conversation with students to analyze different perspectives on the subject. This is your host, Eric Bunce. Today, we're discussing the Russian troop accumulation on the Ukrainian border. But before diving into that, let's check in with this week's news briefer, Shweta Parthasarathy, who will update us on news headlines from around the globe. Shweta? Thank you, Eric. Paris police officers began a manhunt for a gunman who allegedly killed one man and injured a female security guard. A witness at the Henry Dunant Geriatric Hospital, where the attack took place, described the shooting as an execution-style shooting. Police are still unsure as to the motivation for the shooting, but the hospital was reportedly not the target. The local mayor also said terrorism did not appear to be the motive. La Soufrière volcano erupted last week, sending enormous amounts of ash and hot gas into the air. This is the largest in a series of eruptions and other volcanic activity in St. Vincent in recent weeks. It's unclear how many were injured or killed by the eruption, but roughly 16,000 people have been evacuated from their homes. Several people have refused to leave their homes, causing safety concerns. Feminist artist Yulia Svetkova was put on trial in Russia on charges of disseminating pornography after she shared her artwork depicting female bodies. Svetkova's arrest and subsequent prosecution is reportedly linked to the Kremlin's conservative values and promotion of traditional family values. The 27-year-old was an advocate for women and the LGBTQ community. Ecuador elected Guillermo Lasso, a conservative businessman, for president in last week's election. Voters rejected the old left-leaning administration after it led the country to an economic boom, quickly followed by a recession. President Lasso gave his acceptance speech to a crowd of his supporters. Este es un día this is a historic day. It is a day in which all Ecuadorians have decided their future. They have expressed with their vote the need for change and the desire for better days for all. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons found that Syria was responsible for a chemical attack on a Syrian town that sickened 12 people. The group said they had reasonable grounds to believe that a Syrian Air Force helicopter dropped a tank of chlorine gas into a small town in 2018. This is the second time the OPCW found Syria to be responsible for a chemical attack. Syria was also deemed responsible for attacks in March 2017 where the Syrian Arab Air Force used chlorine and sarin gas. Okay, thank you so much, Shweta. Now for today's topic. With tanks in plain sight, Russia is once again amassing troops on its border with the Ukraine. Observers note that it is the largest Russian troop movement in the Donbass region since its invasion of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. These military maneuvers come as the Biden administration applies new sanctions to Russia in response to previous data hacks. Russo-Western relations are further strained by the hunger strike of imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny. What is the purpose of this troop buildup? And how will it affect the already delicate balance in the region? Joining me today to discuss this and more are two of our own Seton Hall students. Our domestic analyst for today is Sebastian Kopek. Welcome to the show, Sebastian. Thanks, Eric. Uh, glad to be on. Thank you. And today's international analyst is Annie Hebel. Welcome back once again, Annie. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Okay. So uh, let's start with the, the recent uh, development in the region. But first, um, Sebastian, can you walk us through where is 
the Donbass, and why is it so, or, or the region on, on the border of the Ukraine, and why is it so strategically important? Yeah, so the Donbass region, um, if you look at a map of Ukraine, is going to be on this very uh, easternmost front, uh, right next to the border of Russia. And the primary strategic value um, for Russia for uh, possibly securing the Donbass region is its proximity to uh, Crimea, which, um, as you know, Eric, was already um, annexed way back in 2014. Um, and uh, partial reason for securing the Donbass might be to um, more easily sort of uh, control Crimea and sort of the water supply uh, into Crimea. Okay, so you mentioned uh, the events of, of 2014. Can you walk us through that? Because we know that they invaded and took over Crimea, but like what happened more with that? Um, so essentially, um, you have to uh, go back a little bit towards mm -hmm. uh, the Euromaiden protests in Kiev. Um, and essentially, um, if you recall, they, uh, they ousted the current government and put in a pro-Western government uh, within Ukraine. Um, this move um, really worried Russia, um, who was concerned that Ukraine was being pushed towards um, uh, the West, towards the European Union and NATO. Um, and so uh, you saw a similar buildup um, to what we're seeing now and a swift annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. So a, a total invasion it was well, of, of a, that region, I'm sorry, yeah, of that region. Yeah, there, were, there was um, sort of um, a separatist within Crimea that acted first and held mm -hmm. a referendum uh, from which to separate from Ukraine. Um, mm -hmm. And Russia sort of took advantage of um, sort of that separatist movement and um, made moves to uh, annex the peninsula. So, and you want to go to you now, what, happened uh now like why now what's been going on in the world that russia feels the need to to flex its muscles in such an obvious way yeah absolutely so um there has been there have been skirmishes along along the ukrainian border for the last several years since 2014 there will periodically be every few months um conflict along the border in 27 or sorry in july of 2020 um russia and ukraine signed a ceasefire agreement in the region which was the longest standing ceasefire up to this point um and it lasted it, it's lasted up until now until it was denounced in march but um in th the past few months there have been kind of increasing tensions along the border and it kind of um it climaxed in March when there were four Ukrainian soldiers who were killed by pro-Russian separatists in the region. And um, this has really just kind of kind of escalated things. Um, Russia, or Ukraine has obviously denounced the Russian separatist movements and has been threatening more action, you know, more mm -hmm. um, escalation on their part. And then Russia has kind of responded by moving in these troops. And it, it's really kind of a, a general east-west conflict. Another another big factor in it is that Ukraine has been pushing to become part of NATO for several years. And so what you're seeing here, too, is as Russia has been moving these troops and these troop movements, it's been heavily denounced by NATO and by the U.S. and by lots of other Western allies of Ukraine. And so what is really devolving here is kind of a battle of East-West Russia versus the rest of the Western world, NATO and the U.S. And so it's really mm -hmm. just kind of all coming to the surface. It's a lot of tensions that have been boiling for years that are just coming to the surface through this event. Okay, so we see those tensions uh, zoomed in on the border between Ukraine and Russia, but also zoomed out between the West uh, and Russia. Well, I wanna focus more on the, the zoomed in stuff between Ukraine and Russia first. Uh, Sebastian, how did 
um, Ukraine react to the killing of four of its soldiers? They were killed. Were they killed by Russians or Russian separatist movements in Ukraine? Um, I believe. Um, well, <laughs> the line's a little bit blurry sometimes uh, because uh, Ukraine <laughs> accuses Russia of sending in um, its own troops to aid uh, Ukrainian separatists. Uh, but the current line is that I believe that they were killed by um, um, uh, separatists in the Donbass region. Ukraine uh, um, itself has reacted, um, of course, negatively, um, and um, sort of uh, uh, as uh, Annie oh. mentioned, the ceasefire. Um, has mostly been broken at this point uh, as Ukraine goes to um, sort of mobilize its own forces um, uh, in sort of reaction. Uh, but mostly uh, what you're seeing is a reaction from um, the United States and uh, the rest of its allies uh, through sanctions, uh, for, for sanctions being put on Russia. Right now, uh, there, it doesn't seem to be a sort of full uh, military escalation, but there is definitely a partial one that's a little bit concerning. And then zooming back out uh, to you, Annie, uh, why is Russia so scared of, of NATO? Why is it so scared of expanding into the Ukraine? Absolutely. So obviously, um, there is a, a large, a large, um, there's, there's a lot of tension between Russia and the Western world, dating back to the Cold War and all sorts of, you know, ideological differences between them. Obviously, though, you've got the, the democratic Western world and communist Russia, and there's there's a lot of tension between them. And it's, it's historic, really. And um, Russia has always been very afraid of NATO kind of encroaching on its territory and encroaching into former Soviet um, Soviet troops. There have been agreements in the past made between Russia and NATO that NATO wouldn't reach a certain point and they've been broken. And it's just kind of a really um, it's it's a really long, long lasting kind of disagreement between the two. And there's, there's a lot of historic mistrust behind them. And so what you've you've seen over the years is Obviously, Ukraine is the large is one of the largest former Soviet states, um, mm -hmm. and as NATO has expanded into other Soviets, other former Soviet states like Latvia and Estonia, you've seen kind of an increasing desire from the Ukraine and several other former Soviet states to have NATO join. And what Russia's big worry is is that if you have these states that share large borders with Russia, and they are NATO, um, they're NATO occupied or they are NATO members, then you have a much greater risk to Russia's territory and Russia's sovereignty, which Russia is obviously very concerned with keeping its territory intact. And there's a lot of it to defend. So really what Russia sees is that any kind of attempt to get close to it by NATO is really a threat on Russia itself. And so that's mm -hmm. its biggest fear is just that any any for, any for um, further encroaching of NATO onto its former territory is a direct threat against it, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a codified down on paper um, and, and in real. Because, I mean, the U.S. has been supporting Ukraine since 2014, no? So there yes. are Western, allegedly at least, Western weapons in Ukraine. But what, what makes the joining NATO different? Yeah, so the biggest fear to Russia is if, if, NATO, if Ukraine was to formally join NATO, then if... Under NATO, Article 5 of NATO basically says that any attack on a NATO ally is an attack on all NATO allies. So uh -huh. that means that if Russia was to attack Ukraine, then or make any kind of attempt on Ukrainian territory, then they would have the force of the U.S. behind them to formally defend them, essentially. So now, if if Russia was to attack Ukraine, it's kind of unclear as to how much Western aid Ukraine mm. would get. If NATO is in force and NATO is in play, then you have a guaranteed 
support by Western troops, which Russia would not like, obviously. So if Ukraine was part of NATO in 2014, then Russia would have put up a, or Article 5 would have been invoked uh, during the seizure of Crimea. Exactly, yes. I guess my question for you then, Sebastian, is, uh, this is, I know this is speculation, but what are the chances of Ukraine becoming a part of NATO and would it benefit them? Yeah, so uh, you've seen definitely um, in, uh, especially more recent years, um, and especially since 2014, a push uh, by Ukrainian leadership to um, sort of join NATO. Um, and especially President Zelensky over the past few months has um, uh, genuinely uh, expressed a lot more support in uh, Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. Uh, however, there is sort of a large um, hurdle that Ukraine has before um, they can even be sort of considered. Um, and it, that is that uh, for a country to be uh, uh, able to join NATO, uh, they cannot have any active um, conflict uh, uh, zones, uh, which both Donbass and the Crimea are disputed territories and um, mm -hmm. the uh, Donbass region is a current conflict zone. And um, the reason that, that that's not allowed is, um, as um, Annie mentioned, Article 5 um, would sort of bring all these NATO allies into the conflict in Ukraine. And right now, uh, NATO does not want to sort of join to a larger conflict with uh, Russia and have preferred um, keeping uh, Ukraine as a strategic partner, but not necessarily as a full member and ally of NATO. There is sort of this value in keeping Ukraine as sort of a buffer state, if you will, between mm -hmm. sort of um, Russia and then the rest of sort of uh, the United States' allies in Europe. And sort of keeping that border um, smaller is definitely in sort of the benefit of NATO, sort of. Uh, figures within NATO and um, sort of Western um, uh, members of uh, NATO have mentioned uh, they would be sort of well uh, be more willing to start, sort of step in and help Ukraine uh, should Russia you know uh, continue to be aggressive and um, uh, especially a invasion of Ukraine uh, would definitely prompt some sort of uh, response from NATO. Okay, even if they're yeah, hmm, that's interesting. I I didn't know that being in a conflict precluded you from joining NATO, because that seems to me like, well, then Russia's just going to keep up a little bit of conflict and that prevents them from joining. But but you also, you know, you noted that there isn't a huge push yet um, by the Western powers overjoyed about Ukraine joining NATO. Um, but nonetheless, there, as we noted, there is already uh, Western support for Ukraine. Uh, let's go back to these more recent events. Uh, Annie, how did uh, NATO and the US, or specifically NATO to start with, uh, react to these troop movements in the Donbass? Yeah, so NATO is very, has they've, they've come out fully to um, support Ukraine, condemn the troop movements by Russia. Um, and yeah, that's really been, been their main reaction. Um, they haven't so far said any, given any specific aid or pledged much mm -hmm. to Russia besides just verbal support and their, they were, I think there was a quote from a, a NATO spokesperson that they were very alarmed by the truth movement. So it's obviously being closely watched in NATO. And um, yeah, for now, there hasn't been much specific reaction beyond just being um, openly against it. Okay, it's just rhetoric for now. And then uh, I know there were sanctions applied recently by uh, the US and I believe some of their allies against Russia. Did that have any factor uh, in this conflict? Does it have any play in th this conflict? 
Yeah, so that kind of goes into a, a different point in this conflict a little bit. So like I mentioned a little bit earlier, a big portion of this conflict and kind of historically any kind of tension with Russia is just a very much an east-west conflict. And so the US, the sanctions that the US recently imposed on Russia are part of partially about the conflict with Ukraine, but they're also about, about several other things. Um, the treatment of Alex Navalny in Russia, Alexei Navalny and the, um, you know, election meddling by Russia in the U.S. election. And so really what you're seeing is there's a, a greater conflict between the U.S. and Russia that has been escalating um, things like Putin or things like Joe Biden's comments calling Vladimir Putin a killer. They've been diplomats expelled. There's just been a lot of tension between the two recently. And this Ukrainian crisis certainly isn't helping. And so these sanctions really just kind of highlight how deep this conflict has gotten between the two and how tight tensions have gotten because the sanctions were massive and they covered a very wide array of grievances that the U.S. has towards Russia. And so that kind of, they really demonstrate just how how much the countries dislike each other right now. Yeah, it's tense. Uh, Sebastian, do you have anything to, to add on that, uh, particularly when it comes to like Alexei Navalny and, and rising tensions between the two countries? Yeah, of course. Um, I think that one angle you sort of could look at this um, is that sort of um, the sort of large sort of active uh, military escalation by the Ukrainian border um, definitely sort of uh, takes up more of a news cycle um, from sort of uh, stories about sort of uh, Alexei Navalny. And obviously, um, if sources from Russia are to be believed, then he's currently in um, near fatal condition. Not making that sort of this sort of a focal point in um, the uh, world news surrounding Russia, I think, is really important for Putin. And uh, just generally, um, I think uh, Annie's sort of spot on with sort of recognizing re recognizing this as sort of a larger context um, between sort of um, the United States and Russia. But there, but there is sort of a reach out between the United States and Russia at this point. It's, it's mm -hmm. not completely um, uh, mute. Uh, I believe uh, Joe Biden did give uh, Putin a phone call. Um, might have been four or five days ago. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure on the date, but it, it was fairly recently. Um, and what I think you see from that is that um, Putin wants to go to the negotiation table. And um, he wants uh, primarily uh, for... Um, the president of uh, Ukraine, uh, President Zelensky, uh, to begin talks with uh, the separatists in the Donbass region, which up to this point he hasn't done. Um, and I, I think that's sort of uh, the goal here for Putin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that part of uh, Russia's calculation might be trying to get the, the news cycle off of what's happening with Alexei Navalny. And we should note recently uh, he was supposedly moved to, to a prison hospital. Nonetheless, um, I'm curious why, so I talked about this in my intro, uh, that there are tanks in plain sight uh, and that reporters are just walking kind of among the, the troops there. There's no attempt to hide this. It's pretty blatant. Uh, and I know before the 2014 invasion, uh, there were like the little green men, there were all these attempts to obfuscate and, and confuse. Um, so the fact that this is so blatant, what does that tell you about uh, Russia's move here? I think it's actually kind of a good sign for Ukraine. Um, I think that um, sort of Russia has, for the most part, been pretty comfortable using these sort of um, less direct tactics in order to sort of begin undermining its opponents. Um, obviously, um, by um, 
its use of Twitter bots to sort of um, call into question um, uh, elections in uh, Western democracies, um, as well as uh, sort of as what happened in 2014, sort of uh, sending in sort of covert operatives, uh, sending in uh, Russian troops uh, under the guise of um, sort of uh, separatists. I would say that um, there's a probable good chance that Ukraine, uh, that Russia is not planning um, a full occupation or invasion of Ukraine. And I think this is really just sort of um, a flex by Russia. Obviously, that doesn't mean the chance is zero, but um, I think it, it's definitely um, more sort of, sort of a direct sort of call out towards uh, Joe Biden uh, and the United States and its allies. The fact that it's so blatant uh, implies that it might have more of a rhetorical value than an actual strategic, um, you know, they're about to invade. Annie, I noticed you shaking your head. Do you agree? Yeah, I very much do. Um, there's a lot of a lot of speculation that Russia's action here is really mainly a fear tactic. Um, and really just it, their aim is to kind of show the U.S., like Sebastian mentioned, that, you know, hey, we're not willing, we're, we're not willing to back down here. Um, so stay away, pretty much. Um, and I, I read an interesting analysis too that a lot of a lot of analysts believe, especially now that Joe Biden has reached out and kind of made the first move, that it especially won't go any farther because um, Biden kind of blinked first, per quote. Um, that you know Putin was really being like, "Hey, we're we're here. What are you going to do about it?" And Biden took the de-escalation tactic of negotiation, and so that a lot of people saw as a sign that. The, the situation won't escalate any further because Biden got, sorry, because Putin got what he wanted out of it. He got the negotiation um, and he can now kind of say his piece, per se. Okay, so Putin sort of got to save face uh, uh, in front of the Russian people. Um, and you think that might have helped de-escalate the conflict. But I still want to ask, uh, what are the chances of this conflict, uh, even if it seems more rhetorical than uh, meaningful, uh, what are the chances of this escalating? Sorry, uh, go ahead, Sebastian, yeah. Um, one analyst I looked at um, said that the chances are about 30, 30%, 70%, um, 70% that uh, sort of it's just as sort of we've been talking about, just sort of a flexing by Russia and sort of a, a direct challenge to the Biden administration, and about 30% um, that the conflict will turn hot and that uh, Russian troops might actually Decide to cross into the Donbass region, um, and I, I do think that it's, it's worth mentioning here that um, if conflict were to were to sort of break out uh, between uh, Ukraine and um, sorry uh, sorry Ukraine and Russia, uh, it wouldn't be sort of a full occupation of Ukraine. Chances are that uh, uh, Moscow is going to choose it, its sort of um, sorry uh, Moscow want, uh, is going to choose its uh, territorial acquisitions really carefully. Um, and it's going to um, sort of align with uh, sort of this over um, overarching sort of narrative that Russia wants to protect its um, um, uh, citizens living within Ukraine. And of course, uh, like I said, uh, mentioned earlier, connect um, uh, um, its uh, sort of land area directly uh, with Crimea, so it's no longer reliant on um, Ukraine for its water supply. It doesn't seem likely. You said seventy thirty. Good on you putting a number on that. Um, uh, what do you think, Annie? 
Yeah, I'd say that's that's definitely a fair assessment. Um, like like Sebastian mentioned, it's definitely important to note that it would not be a full occupation of Ukraine. That's pretty safe to say. The the Western world certainly would not stand for that. I think you would definitely have some some bigger NATO response if if that were to be attempted, and Putin wants to avoid that, as we've established. So yeah, I definitely agree. It'll be if if there is any kind of invasion, it'll be very strategic. Um, and yeah, it would be. It would be interesting to see what the response would be. Yeah. And we're, we're fully in hypotheticals now, but but keep going. What would the response be? Because if they got away with taking Ukraine, which is, I mean, that has to be one of the, the most blatant violations of international law in that decade. Uh, so if they got away with doing that, why, what's going to stop them now? Yeah, if I could speak on this really quickly, um, one of their the one of Russia's main defenses in taking the re- the Crimean region, as we've established, there's a large separatist movement already in Crimea, and so they were kind of able to take Crimea on the defense that or on the on the um, on the note that um, it, they were they were acting to protect Russian people in Ukraine and mm. acting to protect the Russian language and Russian culture because it was quote under attack. And um, what you saw in that conflict is that it was it was certainly an illegal annex. Um, most of the the majority of the the world does not recognize Crimea as being part of Russia. And so I think it would be difficult for Russia to make a similar defense again. And I think any any act that they do going forward would be much more blatant. They kind of got off with Crimea because of their defense and because there was um, it wasn't a, a legit um, referendum because in, under international law, in order for there to be uh, uh, an annex of a region or for a region to break off, there needs to be a full country vote. And this movement mm-hmm. was only in the region of Crimea. So it was it was illegal under international law. Um, and it's it's quite unlikely that you'd have a situation like that again, because the, the tensions aren't as high internal internally. And so, yeah, it would certainly be harder for them to get away with this time around. All right, last question. Um, where do we see Russo-Western relations moving forward in the next couple of years and months? Sebastian? Yeah, I think that it's a it's a little tough to say because I think that- That's um, fair. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, like, we're not necessarily gonna be positive, uh, especially with um, Russia continuing um, its sort of, uh, sort of hybrid warfare strategy against Ukraine. Um, mm. But like, if you sort of take it away from its Ukrainian context, um, the United States and Russia have shown that they are willing to work on uh, work with one another. Um, obviously, back in um, I believe it was uh, February, the New Start Treaty was sort of um, expanded for another five years, mm-hmm. uh, which um, is a really good sign, and it's uh, telling that um, at least on the Russian side, um, they're not either ready or sort of they don't um, desire. A sort of large um, scale sort of uh, uh, arms race. Arms race. Uh, we're not seeking to sort of um, create a sort of large scale arms race between the two powers. Um, and so I, I think you're going to have um, tensions that are sort of definitely, uh, or relations are definitely going to be negative, but I don't think that they are going to um, escalate to a sort of dangerous level, I, I think. Mm-hmm. So, limited tensions uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, but not a full 
escalation. Um, unfortunately, that, that's all we have time for today. It's just been a fantastic discussion. Uh, Annie, Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having us. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Okay. That is all for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not be possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Joaquin Matsumas, technical producers Joel Moran and Brittany Segura, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. I am your host, Eric Butts. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.